Hey, what's up, Jordan? How you doing, man? Uh, we were off last week. Full disclosure, uh, we had to celebrate the wedding of one John Takitani. That's right. My brother-in-law, a guy who was your teammate at Baldwin. Uh, he and his beautiful bride, Jasmine, tying the knot. And so we had to tend to that uh, following all the proper protocol. No worries, everybody out there. But congratulations to John and Jasmine. That was good fun. Yeah, it really was. That was uh, it was a nice, nice wedding. Nice union of, uh, of families. Uh, you did a nice job uh, overseeing the festivities. Uh, beautiful <laughs> venue. So, yeah, excited, excited for Johnny. A day that I think uh, everybody was looking forward to. <laughs> and I don't know if we thought it was happening right away. Yeah, but man, he found the one. And uh, Jasmine, beautiful bride, beautiful. Yeah. Bride. And uh, Johnny, Johnny made out in that that deal. Right. He he's the one that uh, I think uh, made out. Yeah. Uh, was it uh, you, you're, you're punching up in your weight class? Is that yeah. uh, is that yeah. is that what they say? Yeah. So he, he definitely did well uh, on that front. And they just snuck it in, man, because it was torrential rains 24 hours <laughs> later on the island of Maui. So it, uh, it worked out just fine. Uh, the timing was on point, not to mention all of the then announced restrictions as it pertains to COVID. And so we always like to start off these podcasts uh, with something a little more entertaining, maybe something a little more funny. But we're going to start with uh, something that's not so lighthearted, and that is uh, no fans allowed at sporting events, as it was announced. Uh, you have no fans allowed at University of Hawaii sporting events, and we'll get into that because we have seasons opening this weekend, Rainbow Wahine Volleyball, as well as the football program. Uh, and then you have high school football, ILH football, uh, kicking off this weekend as well. Uh, and so the further limitations and restrictions because of the spike in numbers as it pertains to the Delta variant. Uh, you have stories of ICU beds that are unavailable because of all of the COVID patient hospitalizations. It's not a political thing, in my opinion. It is a public health and safety issue. And so uh, we on this podcast, as you alluded to before, Jordan, uh, we are vaccinated and, and we would promote to people out there. We would encourage them to consider also uh, getting the vaccination that appears to be the avenue out of this nightmare. But as it currently stands, no fans allowed at sporting events. And so I'll ask you, Jordan, here as we start very lightheartedly on the COVID subject, uh, how unfortunate and concerning is this and, and and how much does this add now to the long term concern for an institution like the University of Hawaii that is clearly uh, running into some duress, financially speaking, with the fact that they've had to go through an entire athletic season without ticket revenue and then now starting off this season the same in what was already a retrofitted and reduced stadium for football because of the debacle that was Aloha Stadium? Yeah, I mean it's it's really concerning, right? I mean, just beyond the University of Hawaii, right? From a, from a public health standpoint, and and you know, to to be fair, on, on Oahu at the very least, right? All large gatherings have been curved for for twenty one days, I believe it is. Um, so it's it's not just necessarily football games or volleyball games; it is everything. So at least it, you know you you try to be fair across the board there. Um, I, I just really feel for for a lot of the fans, right? The folks, especially the season ticket holders who invested um, in tickets this season in a brand new venue, not really knowing what to expect after years, especially for the long time season ticket holders of, of knowing what to expect when they go to Aloha Stadium. Uh, and so you, you just feel really bad because they, they seem to have a plan in place, right? It was going to, you had to either be vaccinated or you had to show proof of a negative test before entering the stadium, it, which seems like in today's, world right here in August, that that is sort of the the blueprint for holding safe events, right? And and it seemed like the University of Hawaii had a blueprint. And and I think that's been a big criticism of, of a lot of the folks in charge of things, whether, it, you know, in, in terms of venues, in terms of bigger spheres of influence, it's just been lack of planning and lack of foresight that it sort of led us down a very securitous road um, that hasn't <laughs> always uh, led to positive results, but it, it seemed like they had a plan in place. Right. And so it was like, dang, you know, it's like, well, what else, what else are you asking of the university here? What else are you asking of the fans who are chomping at the bit to get a chance to watch this team? Um, you know, and I, I think that is the frustrating part. And, and then when you talk about the university of Hawaii, right. And, and, and the state as well, they, they spent a lot of money retrofitting that stadium for six home games this year. And now you've, you've cut out at least one, of those home games, you know, and you're looking at maybe even up to a third of the home games or even more without having any revenue there. And, and then of course, if, if it goes on beyond that, it's like, well, 
We could have just played at a lost stadium like the high schoolers are doing. We could have spent no money retrofitting this thing, right? If we're not going to allow fans in at any point, and it was only a temporary solution at that, while the new Aloha Stadium gets built. And look, that's a whole other conversation, whether that's happening anytime soon. And it may be more of a long-term home <laughs> there at Ching. Um, but it, it's lost revenue. They've already sunk some costs into that thing to retrofit it, right? And so the only way to make that back is through some revenue and and so it's yeah, it's it's concerning across the board, and and for a, a, an institution in in the University of Hawaii that is always going to be a little bit behind the eight ball now playing in a nine thousand seat stadium that isn't going to have anybody, and they're the only Division One school in the country that's going to be doing that. Um, that just further, I think, kind of you know puts this program on on thin ice. It's like, look, you want to be legitimized, you want to be in the ever evolving college football landscape amongst the competitive, and it's it's going to be harder and harder to do that with uh, with everything going on it's always an uphill battle for Hawaii right because of its geographic isolation from the rest of the United States and from the rest of the college football landscape specifically and so you know you're talking about uh, further complexities when it comes to recruiting you talk about obstacles when it comes to television deals uh, conference affiliation we have seen that uh, throughout the last few decades uh, surface as as being uh, complex problems that Hawaii has to overcome because of its geography. Uh, and here now, Hawaii being the only state currently that at the start of this college football season will not allow fans into the stadium. And, and look, I, I understand, obviously, the, the need by government officials to have to do something because, you, you know, you can't have hospitals overrun and frontline workers and hospital workers absolutely exasperated under these circumstances. And so something has to be done. And so, yeah, you know, having to limit large gatherings and those kinds of things, that, that's, that's just those are the calls that are going to have to be made. It's just unfortunate for Hawaii because so much of this was not self-inflicted. Right. So much of the problems and the issues that they're facing right now financially when it comes to this retrofitted stadium, everything that happened towards the tail end of Aloha Stadium's tenure as the home for Hawaii football. All of that stuff was done by outside sources and entities and University of Hawaii Athletics is being victimized under these circumstances. And so that's the unfortunate thing. It it is almost to no fault of their own, uh, at least in this last few series of events, how much more in the whole Hawaii will find itself financially. Uh, And we're going to get to a little later on in the podcast, this now very fast changing and evolving uh, college sports landscape in terms of conference alignment. Where does that leave institutions like the University of Hawaii associated with the Mountain West or the Big West Conference, the quote unquote mid-majors of college sports. Again, we just uh, we hope that everybody listens to the experts and, and maybe takes the necessary steps to try to get us through this awful nightmare that is COVID. All right, time now for game time. Welcome to the show. We got no guests today, so it's just going to be Jordan and I rapping here as the University of Hawaii season is upon us. That's right. UH football kicks off season two in the Todd Graham era, Jordan, in the Rose Bowl versus Chip Kelly's UCLA Bruins. The Bruins are coming in as a 17 and a half point favorite at the time of this recording. Uh, And so I ask you here, Hawaii coming off of a five and four season, a bowl victory in the New Mexico Bowl. uh, And you have the Bruins who played just seven games last season. They were three and four, uh, but they do have some talent returning. You have quarterback Dorian Thompson Robinson. They have a running game. They run a high tempo. Uh, Hawaii last season had some trouble stopping the run. You figure with the way these two offenses are looking to push the tempo, what are we looking at like 150 offensive snaps here potentially in this game? It could be pretty wild. Make sure you stretch out here because it could be breakneck speed. But do you think Hawaii is being disrespected by this initial betting line? How do you like the chances of the Rainbow Warriors of making this a competitive game? Yeah, I thought it'd be a little lower. I don't think it's egregious. I think it might honestly still be climbing uh, by the time we get to kickoff Saturday morning, Hawaii time, just because Hawaii had finished strong last season, right? But they they were a little up and down, obviously indicated by their 4-4 and Mountain West record, and then they finished on a high note against the depleted Houston team. UCLA, very similar, right? Started the season kind of strong, um, but ended on a down note, if you will, losing their last couple of games. So it's similar in the sense that it was a little bit of a mixed bag in terms of results. The one thing that, that UCLA did that Chip Kelly always does is run the football and run the football really well. They were 12th in the country in rushing yards, over 230 yards per game in 2020. 
And again, it's a, it's a shorter season, right? They only played seven games. And the one thing that Hawaii struggled with the most last year, I don't think it's any secret, was stopping the run. Like they, they, they struggled mightily against the run and they have brought in reinforcements. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Zach McKinley, the, the guy who's in from, from Oklahoma, they have beefed up their line a little bit. You look at their two deep that they released earlier this week, right? They, they basically list four defensive line spots. That's, that's eight defensive linemen. They've got good run stuffing linebackers and guys like Darius Moussao and Pane Pavihi and some of these hybrid guys like Quentin Frazier, but the, the strength of their defense was in the back seven. It wasn't in the front four or three last season. And, and we saw them be compromised a little bit because they needed help from the linebacking core, from some of those hybrid safety outside linebacker types to help against the run. And they, they became a little bit exposed on the back end, gave up some big plays in that end. I think their secondary could be really, really good. Um, but if UCLA is going to be running the football, it's kind of their strength against Hawaii's weakness last year. And that's all we get to work off of, right? I mean, it's all projection other than that. And, and that's exactly what the odds makers in Vegas are looking at. And so, the big question mark, I think, is whether or not they're going to be better against the run. And I think we'll find out early on if that's the case. If they are, then I think they got a good shot of hanging in this game. I don't know if they'll win it, uh, but they got a good shot of being within that huge number, right? Two and a half touchdowns. And then on the other side, with this Temple offense that is continually shifting into the mold of what Todd Grand teams have looked like in the past, right? Last year, we saw some of the remnants of the run and shoot as they sort of transition. And finally, look, they started a tight end in the bowl game, and they will be doing that. They will be running personnel with two backs and a tight end, they, a little more people boxed in, right, and, and looking to run the ball. But he's had success with that. And the question is whether or not Chevin Cordero can have success in that offense as well because it is a big shift for him. So there's still a lot of question marks with this team, whereas with UCLA, with all of their returnees and the, the stability of Chip Kelly, we I think we know a little bit more about UCLA, so you feel a little more comfortable there. So I don't think it's that unfair, the line at this point. I thought it would be maybe closer to 13, 14 or something like that. Uh, and it did open a lot lower, and it has climbed a bit up as the money has been pounding UCLA. Yeah, UCLA adding to the running game. They lost some pieces, but they have Britton Brown. He's a Duke transfer, and so he's a guy that's probably going to have the ball in his hands a lot during the course of this opener. Uh, and the depth is key for Hawaii for a number of reasons. It's not just we need to add more talent to the roster. We need to beef up uh, the defensive line, which was notoriously thin last year, force them really to run three-man fronts. I, I think traditionally when you look at, at Todd Graham defenses, they're a little more versatile than that. Uh, in terms of the number of down linemen they put at the front of that defense. But I think also just because uh, he traditionally likes to run a higher tempo offense. So last year they were averaging somewhere close to 60 snaps per game. I think he'd probably like to get that up to like 72 snaps per game. Uh, and so in order to do that, you need some depth, depth at running back. And so they have guys like Dior Scott, who basically went through at least a labeled position change from wide receiver to running back. Diedrich Parson is a guy who comes over from um, Howard, James Phillips, finally looking to maybe get his shot at, at a bigger role uh, in this offense. Day-Day Hunter. And the thing about all these guys is they will motion out into the slot or they will line up in the slot. So very versatile there. Of course, Calvin Turner, every time he takes the field, seems to be maybe the most talented dude on the field. Uh, and then you add to that uh, receiver depth guys like True Edwards, Zion Bowen's coming back, who looks really, really good. Jared Smart, who's just been the epitome of consistency over his last couple of seasons. Uh, that tight end position, Caleb Phillips is a Stanford transfer. You can expect him in more of like an H-back role. I think this is an offense that will be interesting how it unfolds. It comes down to the offensive line, which did struggle at times last year, but they're a little bit more experienced. I think Cole Leval being healthy is going to be a big factor, especially at that center position. Uh, and then it comes down to Chevin Cordero. Can he adjust to some of the new installs here for this offense this season? You run that many offensive plays that quickly, uh, that means the defense is going to be on the field a lot more as well. And so the depth on that side of the ball uh, becomes all that more important. So uh, yeah, depth was the key. They went out and they got some pieces in the form of a lot of D1 transfers. Uh, now we will see it uh, on the field and if it can come to fruition in making that a competitive ball game at UCLA. All right, Rainbow Wahine Volleyball also about to be back. Fingers, of course, crossed here as uh, we are recording this just uh, one day out from their opener against Fairfield. After about 20 months 
since its last match, Hawaii takes the floor this weekend in the Hawaiian Airlines Rainbow Wahine Classic, featuring Fairfield of the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference, Marquette out of the Big East, and Texas A&M out of the vaunted SEC. Of course, it was an SEC team, Kentucky, that won the national championship this past spring. UH has gone through some significant changes, both on the roster and the coaching staff. Angelica Jungquist leaves, Faith Maafala, their director of ops, she also leaves. So right now, there are only three coaches on the staff, Robin Amo, the head coach. You have Kaleo Baxter and Nick Costello, the two assistants. Robin Amo has had to basically wear a lot of hats here uh, in this run-up to the season. Being part of the Big West Conference, it was just the Big West and the Ivy League that decided to cancel all fall sports last year. And so they are one of just about 20 or so teams that did not play any form of volleyball since 2019. Uh, And so all these other programs that at least played a remnant of a season in the spring. And if you look at the SEC and Texas A&M, they play both in the fall and the spring, sort of split that season up between those two uh, portions of the athletic year. Uh, And so Hawaii had a bit of a disadvantage, I would suggest, in that regard. What do you expect to see on the TerraFlex here starting Friday night versus Fairfield from Hawaii? Well, I'm, I'm very excited because I, I don't have a good clue as to, to what to expect, right? Uh, I know you'll be calling the game, so I'll defer to you a little bit. Uh, you always know that that Robin Amo's squads are always going to be pretty fundamentally sound, right? They're, they're going to be scrappy. They're going to keep a lot of balls up, and they're going to probably result in a lot of long rallies, and they'll get some good tests, right, throughout this tournament. And as you pointed out, look, any competition, I think, is welcomed at this point for this group, especially a lot of these returnees that haven't seen – competition in a year and a half right it's 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 kind of incredible that the big west never found a way to make those fall sports happen right we'll see something similar this weekend with the rainbow wahine soccer team finally getting back out there um but i mean there there are some constants that we know right the middle should be really good amber igd and skylar williams from from what we saw a couple of seasons ago and they just have you know more years of maturity now there brooke van sickle is going to be as versatile as anybody Right, the, the the Calvin Turner of the volleyball team, or maybe we should call Calvin Turner the Brooke Van Sickle of the the football team. Right, with the the level of play that she can bring, basically at any position on the court, um, swinging it and and what she can do in the back row. Uh, outside of that, we're looking at a new setter. We're looking at a new libero. Like there there are a whole lot of other question marks to go along with this team, and you could probably give us a little more insight. But but of the knowns, that's kind of what I expect to see out there. Right, really good middle play. Van Sickle's going to be all over the court and and just knowing Robin Amo, you know, this, this is going to be a good defensive team as we've come to expect. Other than that, you're, I mean, I, I, my guess is as good as, uh, you know, all these folks that are ready to tune in on Friday night. Well, I have been to a few practices, obviously, in preparing for the broadcast here this weekend on, on Spectrum Sports. And so I can tell you, being in the know, uh, that the one thing we do know about this team is we don't know anything about this team. <laughs> we don't know what kind of system they're going to run. We don't know who the primary setter is going to be or if they're going to use a two-setter system. Milana Bird is the Alabama transfer. She's like 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, so a big setter can, can be obviously a force blocking at the net. Uh, good hands. Kate Lang, though, is the highly hyped freshman from uh, Keller, Texas, out of Keller High School. She has huge potential. And it's like... Every single practice you watch, it it is a tug of war between those two as to which setter stands out. And so I think for Robin Almo, uh, while that can be a good thing, it makes it difficult when you're trying to piece together, all right, exactly what your lineup and what your system is going to be going into this season. And so we may see a little bit of tweaking, dare I say, experimentation here in this first weekend. Because again, Hawaii did not have the benefit of playing a quote unquote season in the spring. And so you have a lot of these other teams coming in that are going to be much more fully formed and ready to go than Hawaii with a lot of new faces and a lot of new uh, faces that come from uh, foreign lands as well. So it's an even greater adjustment, especially because if you recall two years ago, uh, Hawaii was running a pretty unique system. They went for a while without a libero. Uh, And so that might be something that can be introduced here because they have a wide array of hitters, uh, some really good versatile hitters in the form of players like Riley Wagner, who's a great defensive player and passer, probably could uh, play libero if she really, really wanted to, uh, but is also a valued hitter. You mentioned the two middles. You you mentioned Brooke Van Sickle. uh, And then a couple of the newcomers that I think are going to make an impact. Martina Leoniak from Poland, 6'3", opposite, and she just brings the 
thunder freshman and so she still has a world of experience to undergo here uh but when you see her you just realize immediately like she has some chutzpah out there i mean she's directing traffic she is a volleyball player and she is only going to get better and there are shades vibes of nikki taylor when i see her play that opposite position uh and then you have some of the players who are coming back that really kind of worked on their games tiffany westerberg who is now committed to the outside hitter position it appears uh, was a former middle slash outside. She looks fantastic, has gotten herself in great shape. She's pounding the ball. Braylon Akana from Kamehameha, she also really worked hard in the offseason. And so I think you're looking at Hawaii having some options, especially when it comes to the hitter position. But who's going to set them the ball? And will it be one person or two people? I don't think we're going to know fully. I'm not sure Robin will know fully until she fills out that lineup sheet on Friday. All right, we switch over to youth baseball. Hawaii's Little League tradition of excellence still continuing. At the time of this recording, it was yesterday that the HNL boys representing the islands defeated Michigan 2 nothing to advance to the semifinals, overall semifinals of the Little League World Series in Williamsport. Remember, no international teams here. Instead, they're doing two brackets, the Tom Seaver bracket and the Hank Aaron bracket. Hawaii in the finals of that Hank Aaron bracket. And boy, were they good against Michigan. Ryan Keanu was the pitcher, retired the first 14 batters he faced. And then you had this wealth of web gems, courtesy second baseman Zach Bagoyo. Uh, you had Nakea Kahaleha who was the center fielder who robbed a Michigan hitter of a home run. I mean, it was unbelievable the level of defense that was played by this HNL boys team. And props to Rob DeMello because uh, there was a picture that went out of the team uh, being addressed over FaceTime by Colton Wong, right? A multiple uh, gold glove winner. And so uh, when you look at that, you think, all right, well, they had a little Colton Wong juju uh, as they took the diamond yesterday. Meanwhile, on the other side of the bracket, South Dakota's Gavin Weir, this lefty pitcher who looks almost exactly like Chris Sale, tossed his second no-hitter of the tournament. That's right, second of the tournament. And so these two teams could be on a collision course in the championship, it would be really, really fun to watch. But what do you think about Hawaii advancing yet again here in the Little League World Series, still thus far undefeated? Yeah, they've been terrific. Uh, their defense is absurd, like absurd. The level of play that they're made, even that Michigan team, there were some plays defensively made by the Michigan Little Leaguers who have to just be kicking themselves because they kick the ball really hard just at Hawaii defenders time and time again. I mean, even that home run that was brought back. And so, you know, this Hawaii team, they, they're, they're kind of quintessential, right? They, they, they pitch and they play defense and, and their bats have been really, really good so far. We're kind of held quiet yesterday, uh, but they found a way to win again. And, and uh, you know, the, the pitching yesterday in those two championship bracket games, right? The, the two winning pitchers, one hit combined with Weir for South Dakota, who is just unhittable like he he's the the best little league pitcher i've ever seen in one of these tournaments like he's better than danny almonte who was two years older than than yeah. all those kids he was playing against like 15 years ago did you see that stat on gavin weir he's given up just one hit like this year in this yeah, the in whole this summer. little league pulse season Six, summer 600, run 600 something pitches like eight or nine starts or something like that and it, yeah he, he struck out like a hundred something of 132 batters he's faced that he's unhittable, absolutely unhittable. Um, and, and that was a team that he played against from Torrance, California, that had been smacking the ball all over the place, and they looked hopeless against him. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And then Keanu's just out there just throwing strikes, and they hit the ball, and the defense does the job, and they got out of there in like an hour and 20 minutes or something yesterday. Just just incredible. And that, that's the thing, and, and Tim Kirkshin always harps on this, but it's so true, like, I, we, we've had the conversation on this podcast about the little leaguers and like, do we, you know, is it a little overexposure or whatnot, but those games are really quite enjoyable because the ball is in play so much or, or if it's not the guy striking out like 15 of the 18 batters he's faced and the game still goes very quick. And it's like, this is so much more enjoyable than some of these major league baseball games. It's like, Oh, there's another walk. Oh, there's another strikeout. Oh, Hey, look, a uh, home run. And then, you know, it's like, this, I don't know, just the ball in plays, it just makes the game so much more fun. But, yeah, these, these Honolulu kids, that defense is incredible. Um, Kekoa Payanal is, like, one of my favorite players that that I've covered on this team. He's the shortstop that plays, like, in left field. He's 11 years old. The kids, he's the younger of the age group, and he's, like, throwing guys out from the grass on 60-foot bases. 
it's uh, they're they're a lot of fun to watch the the little league tv thing this is my other gripe about the tv the modified double elimination like everything's double elimination until you get to these championship games and it's like oh what if we lose a game this happened in central east maui two years ago right they didn't lose a game and then they made it to the u.s championship game and all of a sudden they lose it's like oh now we're done while the other team has a loss too it's like no Double elimination is double elimination, but no, because of TV, because of TV and ESPN and ABC, they got to make it modified double elimination. Like, come on. Yeah. Wait, ESPN is trying to have fewer games. Like, why would they modify the double elimination? They've been showing youth baseball all summer and now they want to limit the amount of little league games they're showing. It's like, no, no, now it's football season. So let's get these kids out of here. Maybe that's what the thinking is, but yeah, it's, you know, I've shared my thoughts. I don't love like the close-ups of these dejected kids, 11 and 12 years old, crying into their mitts. And uh, that's not something that I, I enjoy seeing because, you know, they're just kids. But at the same time, uh, there is an entertainment value to these games. And obviously when there's a Hawaii team in there, which seems like it's every year now, that just adds to the entertainment value and, and just something about these white kids. They're so damn good. And I think what has really been great to see Uh, And maybe this is just because of the standard that's been set by previous Hawaii teams that have made it this far and the way they've carried themselves, uh, that maybe it's contagious in some way, or or even the influence of of individual superstars like Marcus Mariota and Tua Tonga-Vailoa, like these kids come off as so humble. Right. And, and just so down to earth and there's nothing real brash or look at me about them. And that's just so fantastic to see. And in all fairness, uh, South Dakota's Gavin Weir kind of carries himself in a similar way. He is he looks to be extremely confident, but there's not a lot of tantara behind what he does. But did you see that split screen when they showed his pitching motion right next to Chris Sales? And it is exactly the same, it's like the same. identical. It looked like Tiger Woods playing golf next to Charlie. Woods like the swings and all of the mannerisms and all this stuff are exactly the same uh this kid might be off uh, to a bright future uh but that would be fun if those two teams meet up in the championship still a little work to do for hawaii but i agree with you modified double elimination get out of here all right speaking of other things that espn might be influencing to the detriment of everybody else college football conference alignment realignment alignment On the heels of Oklahoma and Texas and their announced intention to join the SEC, the Pac-12, Big Ten, and ACC have announced an alliance of their own, 41 institutions committing to what they refer to as collaborating on future evolutions of college athletics and scheduling. In fact, there will be a scheduling component for football and basketball designed to create new potential interconference matchups, potentially rivalries. Uh, You would imagine with the amount of money that ESPN is putting into SEC, network and into SEC football and those rights in general, it behooved those behind the scenes to pull some strings to try to convince Oklahoma and Texas to add value to the SEC. I don't think that, you know, that's already been something that has come out as far as an accusation of ESPN from different corners. Uh, I don't necessarily see that as being an impossible scenario under these circumstances as they try to add value to this massive investment. Now you have the reactionary move, right? Pac-12, Big Ten, ACC trying to protect themselves and guard against their future and future potential departures teams that would follow suit maybe with Texas and Oklahoma. What the hell is happening here, Jordan? What does this mean for an institution like the University of Hawaii looking at this from afar? Right, right. Yeah, so the, the SEC moves, right? That Those are the big seismic shifts that uh, once again send a, uh, a shockwave across the very, the very treacherous uh, sort of landscape of college football, right? It, it is never settled. Uh, they are tectonic plates that, that, that keep on moving. <laughs> and, and yeah, I'm with you. Like, of, co- of course, right? The, 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 there's no way this was just like, hey, the SEC, like, there are power brokers that are responsible for like billion dollar deals that, are, that, that, that get involved in these things. Like these things don't just kind of happen organically. Like Texas and Oklahoma don't just bolt all of a sudden, like there, there are things that, that that start turning and wheels that are put in motion. So, yeah, I'm with you there. Like it's it's very plausible in that sense, and it, it's kind of interesting, right? Because ESPN does have um, their hand in some of these other conferences, right? The, the Pac-12, the Big Ten, the ACC, particularly the ACC, where they are the partner 
of the ACC network and, and to a lesser degree, the Pac-12 and, and even the Big Ten to an extent, but Big Ten Fox is, is their television broadcast partner, right, when it comes to the Big Ten network. So it, it gets it gets a little messy. And, and so the, the reaction by these other conferences is kind of intriguing, right, because 41 teams across, 41 schools across three conferences felt the need to band up against, what, 16 teams uh, in one conference. And, and it's an alliance that doesn't have anything signed on paper, it's just like a handshake agreement between these three commissioners that, let's be honest, could dissolve at any moment. Like even written contracts get torn up all the time, right? Texas and Oklahoma, look at them, right? The, the, there's just another of the latest example. Like even if if the three conferences had signed something on paper, like it would have been as, as you know, worth the same that the, the paper was worth. So it's it's really interesting because it is further and further shifting, right? These, these super conferences, they are further and further distancing themselves from the, the others, right? The, the Mountain West, the AAC. Just today, the Pac-12 announcing this morning on this Thursday as we record it, that they're not going to expand. The league has voted and they, they've agreed to not expand, which I think is a surprise to a lot of people because a lot of those big 12 teams are sort of up for grabs in, in theory, right? Um, you know, I, I'm sure there are still some folks out there like, hey, you know, if they were going to expand, why not expand to Honolulu, right? In the University of Hawaii. Heck, we, you know, we'll bring up Rick Blangiardi again for the second time in this <laughs> podcast. Like it was just a couple of years ago. It wasn't that long ago on our radio show where where he was he was still keeping that alive. Right. And he was still saying that that it was not outside the realm of possibility. And a lot of that has changed since they've had to move into a 9000 seat stadium. Don't get me wrong in terms of their football landscape. But. It's just further and further evidence, right, that that the haves and the have-nots get further and further apart. And and some of the those in the have-nots are going to get scooped up, whether it's schools in the AAC, whether it's the Boise States or whatnot of the Mountain West. But but Hawaii's not there, right? Hawaii's not in that in that realm, not with its current stadium situation, not where it currently at, is at in the pecking order. Like its its greatest strength might be its its market in terms of Honolulu and the Gateway to Asia or something like that, but. Yeah, it's just it's just further evidence, right? This is partly why you saw like I liken it to like that Super League, right? In in European soccer, right? And it's like that's why people were so mad at it because it was getting away from as big an advantage as the the rich guys have it. There is still an avenue, right? There is still conceivably a path forward, like in European soccer, where like if you're good enough, you can get promoted, you can join these elite competitions. Like in college football, there's just it's further the door that never existed to begin with. Right. We've, we've seen it time and time again, UCF Boise state go on down the line. Like it, it's just further and further transparent. Now I think that, that, that just, it's never going to exist. Yeah. I wouldn't mind if they were going to do this super conference thing, which it's inevitably going to happen at some point, right. In college football, at least specifically, uh, I wouldn't mind if there was some, mechanism in there where if you don't perform up to a certain standard in that super league or super conference, you, you get sent down like you see in, in international soccer I as well. It. And then you have teams that can advance up and, you know, almost kind of like uh, what the OIA uh, was doing for, for many years as mm -hmm. well here on a local level. Uh, I wouldn't mind necessarily seeing that because it presents an avenue, like you say, and sort of continues to include that mid-major tier. But it, it to me, this feels like college football's and college sports in general, but specifically college football is kind of being ruined here, right? I mean, we had such a good thing. We had such a good thing that was built out of this ideal that was amateurism. And then the money got introduced and everybody on the periphery was just making money hand over fist on this product that the public was just eating up. Uh, but the workforce, the labor force in the middle was still being held to the standard of amateurism. And so at some point that had that bubble had to pop. And I think that's where we're at now. And so it has become an unadulterated money chase on every front. And so we could be conceivably, I think, headed towards a place in college football where it isn't necessarily going to even be considered a college sport. 
you could see uh, college football being treated almost more like the NBA G League or a minor professional league serving as a feeder to the NFL. But again, if, if they had just held it to a certain limitation, if you had just, if you were going to make money off of it, you dole it out to all of the member institutions and you raise all boats. And I know that that's a very almost socialistic type of way of thinking, but I think as it pertains to the ideal of amateurism, that's how you had to do it. And once you introduced all those big money television deals, big money coaches contracts. Uh, The bubble at some point was expanding so far that it had to burst. And now we're here and it's just kind of uji because it feels like uh, there are a lot of very deserving institutions that have been uh, trusted, loyal members uh, and participants of the NCAA and of their respective conferences uh, that might be left out in the cold. All right, so we move over now to a new segment here. Again, no guest here this week, so uh, an opportunity for Kanoa and Jordan to do uh, more of their favorite thing, listening to themselves talk. Here is a new segment uh, called Questions You Never Thought Could Be Asked. All right, I'm going to bring up just a few questions here that I don't think at any other time uh, you would have heard anybody ask until very recent developments. And so here's the first one, and this one is kind of mind-boggling. I don't think anybody would have thought that this could be possible, but apparently Apparently, in a recent controlled scrimmage uh, between the Patriots and the Giants, Mac Jones played the majority of snaps with the first team for the Patriots in this scrimmage. And he went off by all accounts. He was like 21 of 24 passing and just lit the field on fire in 11 on 11 drills. Uh, And so the question now becoming, because people are starting to think that maybe Bill Belichick gives consideration to Mac Jones as the starter here this season, sooner rather than later. Um, Mac Jones coming out of Alabama previously to a Tonga Vailoa's backup before having the stage to himself last season. Is there a chance in a question that you never thought would be asked that Mac Jones has a better NFL career at the end of the day than Tua Tonga Vailoa? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's always going to be a chance, right? It's it's not like Max Jones, Mac Jones, excuse me, uh, was some scrub at any point, right? I mean, he was the highest rated pocket passer, basically, coming out of high school. The same year that Tua Vailoa was like the highest rated dual threat overall quarterback, more or less, um, in that recruit class. And, and, and Tua beat him out. And then Mac Jones had an incredible season the year he was the full-time starter. Uh, granted, he was thrown to multiple NFL receivers, but, but so was Tua in a sense, right? And uh, so much of the NFL, so much of the NFL, even for elite quarterback talents, like just pure talents, right, um, is d- predicated on fit, like where you end up in the draft. And, and I, I do think Tua's in a good spot. And, and uh, Chris Sims, who's a pretty good evaluator of quarterback talent, longtime NFL quarterback himself back in the day, uh, who's regularly on Dan Lebitar, was just talking about today how he really likes what he has seen from Tua so far, much more decisive um in his throws his decision making seems to be sped up says he's a lot further along this point than he was last year and obviously not really having the benefit of the preseason last year coming off of the hip injury and then there's mac jones right and and look josh mcdaniel is a very very good offensive coordinator and granted most of his success has come with one tom brady there but remember he won a playoff game with tim tebow as his quarterback like he can coach it up and he can scheme it up and uh, Mac Jones is a guy who's got arm talent. And so if that's that's a pretty good fit if they can they can run the football and they've got those tight ends to throw to. Like, it's not a bad situation to be in. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's like some crazy stretch to think that that Mac Jones is going to have a stellar NFL career. And then the other caveat with that is, right, like even if Mac Jones has a better career than Tua, that doesn't mean like one has to be good and one has to <laughs> suck, right? Like they could both be good. There, there is that possibility. They could also both be bad. Sure, there's also that possibility. But just because you're saying, like, I don't know, Mac Jones might have a little bit better career, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that uh, the runner-up, if you will, in that competition has to be bad or anything. Yeah, I think it's just the question itself you wouldn't have thought would be asked when Tua was doing his thing at Alabama. But remember, he was coming off of a catastrophic hip injury just before last season and was cleared just before uh, his time on the field uh, to take over the starting role from Ryan Fitzpatrick. Uh, And so this season will be much more of a a season that can be evaluated on a proper level for Tua Tonga-Bailoa. He is, by all accounts, fully healthy. He is more acclimated to the system, changing the offensive scheme a little bit. They do have some more weapons. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll get much more of a feel of what Tua Tonga-Bailoa is truly about at the NFL level this year. 
I think we just forgot Matt Jones is pretty darn good too. And like you said, it's all about fit. And Matt Jones, his personality, his demeanor, uh, his his style, his skill set seems to fit that Patriots Bill Belichick way. Uh, and so I'm not surprised that he's looking promising here in the very early goings of his tenure with New England. Here's uh, hoping that both those guys go on to have quality, long careers in the NFL. All right, here's another question that you may not have thought could ever be asked uh, because Hard Knocks on HBO uh, for both of us is one of our favorite shows on TV. We look forward to it every single year. Uh, this season, the Dallas Cowboys are the feature squad. Uh, and I'm going to be honest, it hasn't been the most interesting version of Hard Knocks. Like maybe the least interesting season of Hard Knocks I've ever seen. And so this is the question that you never thought could be asked. Is this year's Hard Knocks featuring the Dallas Cowboys Bad TV. Yeah, it's kind of boring. Not going to lie. It, it, how are they the most boring edition of Hard <laughs> Like, we've had terrible teams. Terrible teams on Hard Knocks over the years. Some of those Bengals teams, like the Browns. I guess the Browns were kind of on the come up, right? But they, they like that was still the Hugh Jackson era. They were transitioning. Um, last year's was fun. They, they kind of double dipped, right, with the two yeah. LA teams. And it was, you know, in the midst of COVID. And there was a lot of, I think... Um, uh, interest in how that was all going to play out but yeah and for the the Cowboys and like I know the Dak injury thing and and like how is a drone shot the most exciting part of an episode like the drone shot and Trayvon Diggs's son like that's that's that was everything like I, did, are they producing it differently like am I missing like do we not have the human interest stuff as much because they can't follow them around as much because of, like I don't know what it is but it 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 hasn't been that entertaining is it Mike McCarthy? Like, does it just come down to the yeah. fact that you have maybe the most vanilla of head coaches in the NFL being one of the feature pieces of this edition of Hard Knocks? I mean, you would think with some of the personalities on that team, you know, Zeke Elliott, I was thinking, wow, this is going to be really interesting to kind of get a little closer to Zeke Elliott and see his personality. And the most exciting thing he's done is wrap a gift for Dak Prescott. Uh, you're right about that drone shot, though, through the star. That thing was pretty fantastic. I'm still not exactly sure how they did that. Uh, but yeah, that is the most impressive thing that we've seen so far in this series. And it kind of just makes you feel bad because you were looking forward to this all offseason. Hard Knocks always gets you ready for the football season. Uh, and this one is just like, meh, maybe it's just a Mike McCarthy thing. I don't know. All right, here's another question that you thought never could be asked. In a recent podcast hosted by Draymond Green called The Chip, he interviewed Kevin Durant, his former teammate with Golden State. They had an on-court beef, if you recall, uh, which I guess created some pilikia in the locker room and eventually led to Kevin Durant's departure from the franchise. Is the beef between Draymond Green and Kevin Durant that ultimately led to KD's departure Bob Myers, the GM, and head coach Steve Kerr's fault? That's kind of what they said in the interview. Uh, Draymond and KD both said that their issue was mishandled by the front office of Golden State and that they were convinced as they were going through that, that it was something, according to Draymond, that we needed to handle, but the front office bleeped it up. It just seems as though there's not a lot of accountability here. They were saying that Bob Myers told Draymond to apologize to KD. Draymond wouldn't do that. And so now they're blaming the Warriors brass for their interpersonal issues. What's going on here? Is that beef actually Bob Myers and Steve Kerr's fault? Could that even be possible in reality? Yeah, I guess you got to ask the question, right? In this, this sit down between the two former teammates, once again, teammates on the Olympic team won a gold medal. Um, it, it sounds like the Warriors brass maybe didn't handle it great, right? It, it kind of seems like they were wanting to kowtow to KD, knowing he was on the contract, knowing that they were going to want to bring him back. And and quite honestly, he was more important than Draymond Green, right? So 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 maybe, maybe they could have handled it better. It's probably fair to say. I, I'm sure... Steve Kerr and, and Bob Myers are probably, you know, have probably thought about it or talked about it since and being like, yeah, maybe we could have handled that a little bit differently. But to say that we needed to handle that, meaning Draymond and Kevin Durant, like what was stopping you from handling it then? Like, were you sequestered from each other the entire rest of the season? Like, did Bob Myers fly you on separate planes and bus you on separate buses to the arena? Like, how is there never an opportunity to be like, you know what, screw those guys. Let's just talk this out man to man. Like how, 
was there never an opportunity, Draymond? Like, what do you mean? Only we could handle that, but they got in the way. Like, were they around? Were they babysitting you 24? Were you locked in your hotel room? Like, well, how did, how is it not your fault at all? Like you, you guys, you guys got in a beef, you handle it, right? That's that's what adults, this isn't some seventh grade team where it's like, oh, the coaches, you know, they, they botched getting these guys back together because they're they're immature kids. Like you're grown adults. These guys are grown adults that could have hashed it out. And like, if you're mad at management, you know, bond over your dislike of management or something, like figure something out, dudes. Like, look, if KD doesn't tear his Achilles in the finals, they maybe win. And this is all, you know, he leaves anyway. Who knows? But, like, yeah, I'm with you. Like, the lack of accountability. Like, why Why is it nobody else's fault? Or why is it everybody else's fault but theirs? That seems that seems a little silly. Like you said, they're adults. And they could have handled it at any point in time. That didn't happen at the very end of the season. That happened early in the season. They had an entire season to squash that thing. And so for them years later to be looking back on it and be like, it wasn't our fault when we got into that fight. Like, I just don't understand that. That makes very little sense to me. And I don't know, Draymond and KD, for as talented of human beings as they are, they are hard to root for sometimes because of this kind of stuff. All right, that's it for questions you never thought could be asked. Uh, I kind of like that segment. I think we'll come up with a, a few more to use down the road. Uh, but at this stage, it is time to end our show more traditionally with our post-game best and worst. Brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full-service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial, construction, and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit WasteProHawaii.com for services, information. What is your best here for this episode of the pod, Jordan? Yeah, my best. I uh, kind of wanted to circle back to uh, your mention that uh, high school football is back in Hawaii, crossing our fingers. Like it, there's still over 24 hours before these games kick off, and I don't want to. I don't want to jinx anything because we all know how things can change, like hour to hour these days with COVID. But uh, kudos to the ILH, right, for for figuring it out and and finding a way to make this happen uh, for their their member schools and. And for um, <clears throat> for their kids to, to to get an opportunity to play football, it sounds like the the public schools are, are nearing that as well over the next month or so. It seems like we're you know figuring things out. And again, things change day to day. It's it's hard to say, but uh, you know I'm I'm hoping they they get out there tomorrow. Uh, you know you got three games in the ILH. Kamehameha Punahou is kind of the the highlight of that. Iolani Damian. But the the other thing I wanted to bring up was. I think it's kind of cool. Like they, they pivoted a little bit, right. Then they, they figured out a way to, to add like one double a schools for Kamehameha and St. Louis to add more competition, to get more games in, not just for those two schools, but for some of the other division one, division two schools like Iolani and Damien uh, as well as pack five. So I, I just think they, they, you know, they, they were creative. They were willing to adapt. Uh, and, and I wanted to uh, pass a little kudos on to, uh, you know, Blaine Geis in the league and, everybody involved there uh, for, for, for making it happen again, knock on wood, cross your fingers, do everything, you know, to, to, to make sure you uh, ward off any jinxing or bad luck because we still got a day to go, but uh, it'll be nice to see some football. Yeah. Well said. And that actually segues well into my best because quarterbacks coach for Kamehameha Kapalama is one Brian Ayat. He is a 1994 Iolani graduate, former Iolani quarterback, and he is being inducted as it has recently been announced into the University of Montana Sports Hall of Fame. This is a guy who took over the QB position at Montana in 1996, led Montana to the 96 National Championship game. This is then 1AA, now FCS uh, college football, also two Big Sky Conference championships. Uh, the guy was an absolute beast. So that's my best congratulations to him. Very, very well deserved. And of course, Iolani one team, got to give uh, my guys some props. Got to. Right. Is it just me or do we, do we, um, Maybe overlook Brian a little bit just because uh, I don't know if it's, you know, he, he wasn't a St. Louis quarterback or he came, he was kind of the the early trailblazer, right? He played at Montana, a little out of sight, out of mind when there was a little less, you know, media access from from the islands to to that level of football. Like, I, I feel like we, we overlook him a little bit because the guy was darn good, really, really good uh, at that position and, and what he's done coaching. And there's been Nyots that have come after. Right. And, and so I just feel like, I feel like we, we don't give Brian enough credit. And, uh, this is a nice opportunity to, uh, to reminisce a little bit. Then, uh, in fact, give him 
a bit of the uh, the accolades that that he deserved and, and he garnered in his playing days. Yeah, I think that's really well said. This, this was a time that he was starring at Iolani when St. Louis was dominating the prep football realm. Uh, and Brian Ayat actually pulled off an upset victory against St. Louis. And that was in the heyday of St. Louis. They had like Olin Krutz and Dominic Raiola and some of those guys that were playing Chris Fuamatumaafala, like as good as St. Louis has been in terms of overall talent. And Brian Ayat actually scored a win for little Leolani against St. Louis over the course of his career. And then of course, going on to play in a national championship game. I don't care what level of college football you're playing. If you get your team to the big game, uh, you're doing something that is hall of fame worthy and he's getting that kind of wreck all right let's move to our worst what's your worst yeah my worst uh lucas herbert he's a golfer on the corn ferry tour he's got a couple of wins uh on uh european circuit uh he booked a flight he had recently played at the boise stop on the tour uh just the other week booked a flight to columbus uh for the next stop on the tour uh but he ended up booking a flight to columbus georgia not ohio uh where the tournament is not in the south and he got to the rental car place, realized he was in the wrong state. Uh, but he booked the car for, for the actually the Columbus, Ohio rental car facility. So go figure there. In his defense, he's Australian. Uh, so, he, you know, he's, he's still figuring things out here in the States, perhaps. Um, but uh, just ended up in a completely different part of the country. Ended up making it. He's going to be fine. I think he's playing this weekend. But uh, you, uh, you ever get close to, to booking... Uh, the wrong you end up like in Portland, Maine instead of Portland, Oregon or something like that. That, that you know, I feel for for old Luke there. Yeah, I, I've I've been able to avoid that uh for the most part in, in my life, but um, but yeah, that's that's a tough one. I mean, uh, to get off of a plane and be like, oh, I'm in the wrong city. Like I have not experienced that, luckily, knock on wood. I don't know what the Boise gate agent was saying, but you know, it's like flight. One, two, three boarding for Columbus, Georgia. I feel like they probably would have said that. It's probably on your boarding pass. But you know, it it happens, right? I mean, I'm sure if I'm sure you told somebody, hey, meet me in Kailua. And they show up in Kona, you know, and instead of you know Kailua Oahu or something like that. It can get a little confusing sometimes. That's right. Yeah, you're in uh, Waimea on Kauai as opposed to Waimea Falls Park. That would uh, that'd be another yeah. one that would that would probably uh, ruin your day a little bit. So, yeah, I guess it's possible. But, um, you know, fortunately for us, uh, I'm, I'm speaking for you, assuming you've also uh, avoided, yeah, I've avoided that. Situation. I've avoided that up to this point. So <laughs> knock on wood, it doesn't, uh, you know, creep up on me in the future. All right, uh, let's get to my worst. And this one really, really stinks. John Ursua, former University of Hawaii pass catcher, tore his ACL in an exhibition game against the Denver Broncos this past weekend. He was competing for the final roster spot for the Seattle Seahawks and by all accounts, having an impressive training camp and preseason up to that point. 27 years old, so you're just hoping that he's able to rehab and and still can earn another shot to make it, but this certainly puts him uh, behind the eight balls. Just a a bummer because uh, it appeared, uh, by all accounts, and even if you watch some of the the video highlights that are available online, uh, the dude was, he had stepped it up, he was route running, he had some explosion to him, uh, and I think they really liked what he was doing. So a bummer for John Ursula. Yeah, it really is. It really is, right? And and you never know how many opportunities you're going to get, no matter what your age is, right? And so, yeah, he's a guy that they they seem to really like in Seattle amongst that organization. So we'll hope we'll hope he's able to bounce back stronger. All right. Well, that's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui owned Maui operated for Maui's people. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy at Jordan Helly or at Talk Sports eight oh eight. We'll do it again next week. Jordan, have a good one. See you, man.